Hello and welcome to the Science of Fiction. I am joined today by Ben Vowsler. Hello there. Hello there. And we are going to be discussing comic book science. Yes, it sounds like a really silly excuse to talk about comics, doesn't it? Yes, it um, sounds like it, but we're hoping to get lots of your questions in on the over the web. Uh, you can send them in via Twitter on at ThinkOutreach. You can send them through the uh, mail box on the player. And you can also send them through our Facebook page. So, um, yeah, sorry, we've got some other people here in the studio and they're just leaving. But it's, it's, so don't worry about the door noise in the background. Um, so, yeah, what, what comic books have you got for us? Well, th this is all based on the fact that a while ago I uh, actually did a master's degree dissertation looking at the depictions of science and technology in comic books. Now, it sounds a little bit dry, but really it was an excuse for me to read comics for a while. But I found out some fairly interesting things about comics. And I've also brought with me, in case you're interested, a few bits of music that are either comic-based or are superhero-based or, in fact, are science-based. So hopefully we'll be able to play through those as well. I have a pile of comics with me. Quite whether we'll sit here reading comics for an hour, I don't know. I'm perfectly happy if that's what you want, but I'm not sure your listeners would agree. I, I don't think there's a market yet for reading comic books alive on radio. There, there may be, but it'll be rather descriptive exercise. Well, there have been some comics that have given way to radio programmes, but um, perhaps not today. Not live. Live creation of a radio phenomenon. So... What we recommend you do is, if you've got any comic books, anything you want to send in, send them to Twitter, send them through the Live Player uh, comic box, let us know what's going on, and um, yeah, we hope for a great show. Let's catch you off this track.
And that was Jimmy Olsen's Blues by the Spin Doctors. So, Ben, would you like to tell us why you decided to bring that track with you today? Well, it's uh, you may have noticed the lyrics, I've got a pocket full of kryptonite. It's actually from their 1991 album, Pocket Full of Kryptonite, and it's about Jimmy Olsen, who um, many people may know is a, a photographer and, and general runaround chap at the Daily Planet, which is Superman's newspaper. And the song itself is about Jimmy Olsen being absolutely head over heels in love with Lois Lane. Um, and it's obviously somebody he's never going to be able to get with because he's against the uh, man of steel himself. And uh, it's just a, a song about a comic book hero from a slightly different slant, and it's a, a song I've always been very fond of. Interesting little tidbit I found out earlier, and I must admit on Wikipedia, so take this with a pinch of salt. Uh, apparently, after the song came out, the guys that write and draw... Superman comics um, enjoyed it so much that from then on quite often you'd see Jimmy Olsen when pictured wearing Spin Doctor's t-shirt that is a brilliant little tidbit if Wikipedia can be believed <laughs> and I, I'd like to point out if anyone does send in a science question we will not be using Wikipedia as our primary source uh, we've got one question already sent in we'll be coming to that in a bit but do happily send them in through the live player uh, send them in f to at Think Outreach on Twitter or send them to the Think Outreach Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thinkoutreach. And I'll answer any science question. And Ben will try as well, I suppose. But we also would like... Happy to give it a go. If you can theme it to comic book science, that would be great. I think I should, because this is our first show, I'll introduce myself a bit. I'm a research scientist, and I am involved in using great things called mass spectrometers, and I look at protein interactions. And as you can imagine, this has no relation to comic books whatsoever. <laughs> so it's great to get out of the lab and do that. While Ben, who is joining us, he, as he said, is master's dissertation on a similar theme to this tonight's show. But he also works with the Naked Scientists producing their science content, which is a great show, which you should probably check out if you haven't come across already. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll also later in the show be discussing some weird science papers I've come across in the last week because I think it's always fun. If anyone has seen the, or sorry, should I say, listened to the Bursa Bubble show, they'll know I used to do a totally scientific section sometimes to replace their totally unscientific survey. And I used to get some spurious science papers in there. So should hopefully be interesting. I think I've got some good ones. Even got one which relates to the Royal Wedding from Cell. Should be brilliant. Um... Yeah, so let's get on with the comic books. Is there one you want to start with in particular? Well, I, I thought I'd start really by attempting to justify myself, which is probably not something you should ever do, especially live on air. But there might be people listening who think, why should we care about comic books and why should we care about the science in comic books? And obviously I had to do some research, I had to justify this being my dissertation. And the literature is actually fairly sparse. There's quite a bit on some very specific stuff, there's quite a lot on gender depictions in comic books and that sort of thing, but not that much on science. So I had to look for things like comic books and learning and so on. And there's some pretty good evidence that uh, comic books provide a shared interest for a peer group, which encourage them to read more. They share reading amongst them. It looks... Uh, DC, or Detective Comics, uh, did a survey back in 1994 that seemed to show that comic book readers are actually more likely to read books and they watch fewer hours of television. So it's, it's a particular audience that we're looking at. But there's also something very important about the way that comic books are taken in um, through our senses, in a way, because it differs from reading a book or watching a film. There's a key element of comics. I'm going to grab a random choice here. Um, this is War and Pieces, which is a fables collection. Um, the gaps between 
each and every one of these frames. Uh, in this case, it's a black line. In some comics, it will be a, a thick white border. That's called the gutter. And actually, because comics consist of a series of stills, the action takes place in the gutter. Now, that means that the action doesn't take place in a way that's particularly being described to you by the words. It's not being described to you by the images that you're seeing, or not all that often, which means that actually all of the action in a comic book takes place in your mind, which it's theorised is actually slightly more powerful with regards um, visualising it for yourself. We know that when you see somebody doing something, there's a section of your brain that fires off these, these mirror neurons that sort of do the same thing as the neurons in your own brain that would perform that task. And there may be some suggestion that when you are imagining the actions here, it gives you that closeness that you may not necessarily get seeing the same actions on the screen. So there are good reasons to look at comic books to try and work out if they're actually much good. Also some lovely uh, Japanese research based on showing frames of manga during a biochemistry lecture. And this one particular Japanese lecturer decided to test this out by taking two separate classes. One, he integrated the manga to illustrate the point and with the other class he didn't. He just kept it as a fairly dry lecture. And he found in little pop tests that he did that the manga clearly helped people to remember what was going on. Now, it may just be because it's an association that's different from normal. It may be because manga's very popular in Japan um, and so it's something that they would immediately remember for that reason. But it certainly seems that having these pictorial references, having things getting across in different ways than just the written word or the spoken word or what you see on a cinema screen is actually very important for how we learn. So I wanted to know how scientists, science and technology were actually put across in these comics and try and work out if that might be having an effect on the way that people perceive, or certainly the audience, perceives scientists. I mean, it sounds brilliant, and I had never thought of that point before, as you say, that the gutter is where the action happens. Because it's very common point people say about books and reading books that we should you read books more than TV because obviously you get to use your imagination with books, but they still state what's actually going on, where same way as a TV flows through the narrative, where a comic book does literally make that jump. And um, if done well, it isn't jarring, of course, but it is a wonderful thing I'd never even occurred to me before. Well, it just leaves so much of it up to you. That's the thing. And so with violent comic books, the violence in there can be very extreme or not very extreme. And there's a wonderful example in a book by a chap called McLeod, which was all... I can't remember the title now, but it was all about comics and how they work and he showed two frames next to each other one of a newborn baby and one of a headstone and the point being that when I showed this to, to, to my fellow students at the time some of them went oh and others didn't seem to respond and some smiled and that's because in that gutter in that sort of quarter inch of white space you could either have a tragedy whereby a newborn baby sadly didn't make it and that's why you then see the headstone. Or you can have 80, 90, 100 years of life. And that just shows you how much people invest, even without necessarily realising it, into this particular form of media. So hopefully I've justified the point of actually looking at this. I think you've certainly justified. I think it would be very, very hard to argue that there's no point investigating science as media. One thing I found really interesting, this is a fact a friend of mine taught me, and he did his classics dissertation on this, and he looked at, I think it was Spartacus and Spider-Man. Right. And um, the great thing he pointed out that 
just like in classics, you could also see in Spider-Man that the, different, the comic books used radiation, where the modern movies have used genetic modification. And it showed the fears of people at the time. And of course, Spartacus, you could look into and you could work out what was going on in the time of Spartacus was written. I'm not a classicist, so I won't even pretend <laughs> I can analyse that text on radio. So I think that's a good place to get us started. Do send in any questions you've got. As I say, we've got one we'll come to in a moment. And um, we'll get straight back to you after this next track. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Welcome back. And I'm going to leave Ben to explain that last song because it's another one of his choices. Well, that was The Grand Tour, which has, has actually been released under two different names. The Sound of the Ladies, uh, it was originally released by, but that is a pseudonym of Dr. Martin Austwick, who some of you may know from his work with the Answer Me This podcast, where he is Martin the Soundman. Um, but I'm very, very fond of his music, and he's written an album called Songs from the Scientific Cabaret, which came out earlier this year, actually. Um, and that particular song, The Grand Tour, is about Voyager, tour, Voyager 2's Grand Tour of the Solar System. And I think, it's uh, other than just being a lovely song, I'd really like the way that he's humanised Voyager 2. And uh, it really makes it sound... I, I, I almost feel quite sorry for Voyager 2 at the end of that, talking about how it's it, you know, the power source is to us oxygen and plutonium, but to Voyager itself, it's his heart beating within. That one thing which is quite interesting is when I was looking for scientific papers this week to put in the show, I did come across the fact that I th- it's probably Voyager 1, though I can never remember which order they're actually in, in space now, because they kind of rotate. But I believe they're about to leave the solar system, so it's quite a poignant time to play that. Yes, well, there's a mention in the lyrics about um, Voyager 2 not pausing as it, as it passed the heliopause. And so Voyager 2 has definitely gone out of the heliopause, which is this uh, sphere, or the best way to say it is it's the sphere of influence of the sun. And the sun itself is obviously firing out lots of radiation, lots of particles and so on and it just breaches this this threshold really where the the pressure from that is no longer really enough to push away the particles coming from the rest of space and so we had some very very interesting data coming back just as it crossed this this threshold the heliopause is there if i remember correctly there's a shockwave as it goes across that or is that one of the earlier crosses it gone because the trouble is with voyagers it's crossed several lines which are the edge <laughs> of the solar system and um I know astrophysicists have a lovely vocabulary for all of them, but... Um, I'm not quite sure. I remember reading about the, the interesting new data as it was picking up different types of particles that, that were otherwise being pushed away from the sun. Was there a shockwave? I'm not sure. Well, if anyone's an astrophysicist or a cosmologist, uh, let us know. We'll now get on with the... Well, we've had two messages in, so thank you for that. Only one of you has given us a name, though. The first one is... What scientific failure in comic books annoys you the most, from Michael? Um, That's a difficult question, and I don't think the answer could be specific to comics in particular. I think there are scientific failures in media all of the time, some of which you can really forgive, because either the the film or the television programme or whatever it is is good enough for you to suspend your disbelief, or because you, you know it's an obvious plot device. I mean, the, things like Doctor Who, of course, is, is riddled with scientific inaccuracies and, and things where they are, quite frankly, taking the mick. But you forgive them for it. Um, the things that really get me are actually... I, I feel like an utter pedant with this, but they're, they're the things that are quite simple and are sort of mistakes that shouldn't have been made. We were watching a programme a little while ago that had... Uh, a character in it who uh, I think it was something ridiculous like unless he had human blood um, he would age very rapidly and he was being chased so wasn't able to access blood and he ran away and I was quite happy to suspend my disbelief and have this character that needs blood in order to not age that was fine the the thing that really got me though was as he ran off um, his hair went white 
And <laughs> again, I'm being a pedant because fair enough, yeah, as you age, your hair is quite likely to go white, but it wouldn't have all grown through and all have gone white in the 10 minutes he was running away. So it's those sorts of things that actually pull me out of a programme and those sorts of scientific inaccuracies that really get me. Whereas with comics, I'm really quite keen and, and quite happy to suspend my disbelief and read all sorts of things about space travel, time travel, and fantastic technology. The X-Men, of course, have these incredible abilities that have no mechanism in place. I think the X-Men's a really good example, because I was about to say, some of them, if it's a device to make the story work, I'm far more likely to suspend disbelief over that. So the X-Men, I know mutations can't cause you to shoot lasers <laughs> out your eyes. But it's the premise, so it's internally consi internal consistency which is far more important. I think the one thing which really bugs me would be... Uh, I was about to call it The Omega Man, but it wasn't. It was the remake with Will Smith, where he seemed in his own lab to be able to do every bit of science <laughs> that we can do in an entire department, and he could do it quite quickly. And I could find that quite hard, because it's like something, you're not very good at your job. <laughs> Will Smith is better than you. And that's... I find that quite jarring, because... I believe one person can come up with a magical cure in those situations because st all stories are stories of coincidence. And um, I will be, well, I'm really interested to he hear about a story of coincidence. I mean, I don't get annoyed with friends when everyone walks into the room at the same time. <laughs> but if it's going to be science, make it so he finds the bark on the tree causes an effect. Don't make it so he sits there, as he does in uh, that movie, um, and have an HPLC unit directly from my lab and run sample after sample and somehow he gets progress every single time it doesn't happen <laughs> but I think that's a very personal and stressful situation of working science but the reality of science is, is very very rarely put across in film in comic book and, and I think it has to be accepted I mean look at um, things like CSI which was and actually there is a there is a comic book version of CSI which I ended up uh, using as one of the comics that I looked at in my dissertation and uh, of course you get your DNA results immediately and uh, all of those sorts of, and they're and they're 100% accurate all the time and it's the reality of it is obviously not quite like that but uh, the sheer fact that they are communicating the idea of using DNA to find something out I think is is you can forgive them for including that even if they haven't quite got it right I don't completely forgive them though because actually the DNA one's a really good one again because DNA evidence is actually often misunderstood by juries and as sad as it is, jury members, being the fact they're meant to reflect the standard public, will get their scientific knowledge sometimes from CSI. And in a way, I don't think it would be wrong to put in CSI the examples where it gets the wrong evidence, or the, the, and someone will probably be a fan of CSI will probably be able to find an episode where it happens, because <laughs> there's so many now. But it certainly doesn't happen enough that people show the limitations of science, or the limitations of the real world, and real problems it can cause, because... A DNA test, I think, will narrow it down to one of five people in this country. And in court, that's actually a really big issue. It means it's not proof that... It's not beyond reasonable doubt that one of those other five people didn't do it. And that has, has serious implications. And misapplication of science is far more dangerous actually been not using it at all. That's a very good point. I think when you have people who've, who've seen CSI and so on and they their understanding of the DNA results is that it says it's this person or it says it's not this person. And then when they do end up on jury service and, and they're told there is you know, a 98% chance that it is this person, then that uncertainty can 
weaken their what would otherwise be a, a perfectly good belief belief not quite the right word but a, a faith even in the DNA results and it's weakened by them seeing these perfect results on television so I think you've got a very good point and I think to be honest we could we could witter all evening about what we find annoying about about science on TV or in comic books as it happens we, we mustn't release our inner pedant too much <laughs> uh, we got a second um, the second message sent in was I believe you're referring to understanding comics, but sadly they didn't give a name, so... Well, whoever you are, thank you very much, because you're quite right. It's an excellent book as well if you want to uh, get to know what comic books are about and how comic books work. Understanding Comics by McLeod, I think it came out in 94. Um, so thanks for letting us know. I, it's been a while since I wrote this, so I had forgotten. I'm very sorry. But yes, Understanding Comics, very, very good book. And, uh, yeah, if you do send your name, and we'll definitely read you out and give you the credit for that. Now... When we sort of put this show together, I went looking into my comic book collection, which, I'll be honest, has one comic book in it. <laughs> and it's actually, I believe, technically a graphic novel, but I'll leave the pedants to work out what the difference between a graphic novel and a comic book is, because I'm not entirely sure. I think it's just thicker. And um, it's, it's, one, uh, it's an odd reason I've got it. It was um, the artist in it actually lived down my road, and sadly I can't remember which one of the four people on the cover was the artist. But it's called The Authority, and it's the first one of uh, this series. And one thing I really liked about it is it had a character in it called The Mechanic. And it's a wonderful idea that it's uh, the superhero who is basically got nanotechnology inside her, so she can um, make a metal machine to do whatever she wants. And the way they do this is she often is depicted as a metallic, so it's sort of your Terminator-style look, you're more your Terminator 2 Terminator, not your Terminator 1. Um, but then she can um, build wings if she needs them to do that. And I remember thinking this was really cool at the time. And I was 15, so if you think that's sad, let me off. <laughs> Teenagers all have bad ideas at times. But I, it was things like that I thought were just the imagination that someone had put into what was quite a conceivably realistic superhero. Uh, there were other... The story's actually quite interesting because it has other ones. It has some more of your fanciful ones, your sort of... There's a, one of the characters, Apollo, who's very much a Superman powered by the Sun character and things like that. And there's a, it's um, because of the universe, they obviously mimic a lot of the more famous characters of other universes. But what's interesting is Warren Ellis is one of the people who is credited with this, and it's one of the ones that I know Ben authors who Ben's looked into quite a lot. It, well, yes. It, uh, now I. Somebody else, I think, on Facebook had actually asked if they could get a copy of my dissertation in order to critique my selection of comics. So at this point, I'm going to explain it. Because it was a scientific study, I had to find an objective way of choosing the comics. Otherwise, I could just go for all comics that were full of science, and then it would be quite apparent that there's lots of science in comics. So what I ended up doing, in order to be as, as objective as possible, was to pick certain dates on which I would go and get comics. And I got basically every comic or graphic novel I could get from Bristol Central Library. So the idea there being that they're accessible to everybody. They, uh, the, the way the library works is largely based on requests, so they are things that have been requested. And as it turned out, three of the ones I ended up looking at, Transmetropolitan, uh, Ministry of Space and Planetary, um, and that's the, I think, some of the first eight issues of Planetary combined, uh, likewise of Transmetropolitan, um, all written by w Warren Ellis. And again, you're 
you're quite right that he picks up on certain scientific issues and runs with them and lets his imagination go quite a long way. And that, I think, is a really good thing. And there are some nice examples in Transmetropolitan. It's very much about uh, enhanced humans. There's quite a lot of augmented reality in there. All stuff that's, that has a plausible base in reality. One of the things that really caught me that I, that I did like was there's one point where he goes out of the city and into the reservation. And he has to have a series of vaccinations in order to do that. And the sheer fact that he's having vaccinations in order to go to a different area I, I was immediately pleased with. And then they explained that actually, although some of those vaccinations were to protect him from what he'd find out in the reservation, a lot more of them were to protect the reservation from what they would find in him. And I liked the fact that they actually went to the, the effort of explaining that. So Warren Ellis, I think, is a very good chapter to look at with regards taking established and plausible scientific ideas and then running with them into the, the fantastic worlds that he does create, and I mean that literally as in uh, fantasy worlds. And it, it works very well. I mean, that's really what the basis of science fiction, in my opinion, should be. Likewise, Ministry of Space, it's, it's doing the same sort of thing. It's based on largely World War II technology, but suggesting that what may have happened if, uh, if that technology had been put to use for going into space a little bit earlier. And it also looks at some of the social aspects of it. So although in Ministry of Space, the British Space Agency, Agency got into space a lot earlier and benefited from that technology, it's only at the end of the comic that you realise that actually we're still living in a segregated world. And it's these sorts of aspects where you're not only looking at the science, the technology, the scientists, but you're also toying with the implications um, that I find really appealing. I mean, the thing which I love about that is something that she said there. It's part of all science fiction. I quite like the phrase which some people use, speculative friction, which is a brilliant way of saying that you have your possibly unrealistic thing, like the X-Men, the mutations which aren't conceivably possible in their own right, but X-Men used it very well to discuss racism or some other topic, and you can then run a lot further with it. Because if you did the same story as X-Men with black and white people, is it really is actually about you wouldn't probably be able to push the boundary so far because you would then start hitting on historical events or you start conducting emotions far more rawly and directly that you don't necessarily want to because you want to take a more objective viewpoint and I think that's wonderful, the same thing you're saying about the uh, Ministry of Space is they've been able to use an alternative universe to, to, to investigate something and it, it is an investigation, it's not a scientific one but it's a uh, thought experiment, what is this like? And I think that's incredibly valuable. It's interesting you should say that, because there's, there's speculation that uh, Superman, um, who was pretty much the original um, comic book superhero, rather than characters like Dan Dare and so on, who weren't necessarily super. I mean, he, he was, of course, an alien. He's powered by Earth's yellow sun. Uh, there's a suggestion that his double life reflects the the way that, for a, a long period of time, Jewish people had to hide their real identity, because it, 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 the writers initially were, to an extent, having to hide who they really were. And so I think you've hit the nail on the head there, that there's a lot of exploring social issues, but likewise exploring scientific issues. And by couching it in an alternate universe, you, you're enabled to do it in a much more free way. It's sort of a different way of this sort of animal farm allegory though that was always a very thin one because everyone noticed it at the time publishing <laughs> but it is that way of getting yourself outside and reflecting back on yourself which I love 
I'm really glad you brought up Superman, actually, because the first ever edition came out a while on the internet for free because I don't know if it's dropped out of copyright or the publisher decided they were just not going to make any more money from it. So I picked up and read it. And it's really interesting how he changed from then to the Yellow Sun-powered character you talk about today. Yes. Because he was... It was simply the difference in gravity, a lot of it, or in his strength, so he could jump over houses. And But he couldn't fly. He couldn't fly, but he could jump far enough that it didn't really matter, and his strength was the, the difference gravita- of the gravity between his home world and here. And I think that's going to see how, as they had to keep selling it, they had to sort of keep adding to the storyline, and they made their own retro continuity to try and keep it together. <laughs> Retconning, it's called. Yes. Um... I was trying not to use a short version <laughs> so listeners would actually understand what I mean. But I, I do know Superman had the problem that they actually had to wipe out the characters every so often because they just got too powerful and the stories got boring because it wasn't speculative anymore. That's very true. They do reboot um, these franchises quite often. There's also another intriguing aspect with... Uh, and Spider-Man's probably the best example, which ties into the track that we're about to play. Um, Spider-Man originally was bitten by a radioactive spider. And that, that was his backstory for yeah. a long time. Um, in the films, when they rebooted it, he was bitten by a GM spider. Now, yeah. you see the same sorts of changes in attitudes that the general public have reflected in the different eras of comics. And very much there was a lot of atomic stuff in the, the golden era of comics, uh, which is sort of 40s to the 70s. It's one of those really... There are definitely comics coming out now that would fit in the golden era, and there are probably comics coming out in the, the 50s that would appear to be of a late era but the the way that public attitudes are reflected in comics and it, it, with science in particular I think uh, is again worthy of study and, and something that I wish I had time to, to look into a bit more but the, yeah so I, I mentioned Spider-Man in particular because I've also brought in uh, a cover of the Spider-Man theme tune um, and I wanted something a little bit raucous so this one is by the Ramones and um, yeah do keep on sending your questions it's great to hear from you Yeah. 
that was Spider-Man by the Ramones. And we're now going to move into the sort of weird science segment. So I'm going to talk about a couple of papers I found. Uh, the first one is Alien Giant Tortoise Helps Restore Ecosystem. <laughs> now that sounds like something out of a comic book. Sadly, apparently these alien tortoises come from Earth, which really disappointed me when I read it. But apparently on a tiny island in the Indian Ocean, an alien species can sometimes do good. Uh, this giant tortoise uh, was reintroduced to um, help, basically, um, with the plant life there. Because what they do is it goes around and eats the seeds. And uh, it then poos them out, and it then fertilises the seeds. And they seem that they've started growing a lot better, having put this tortoise in there. But, yeah, sadly, the alien tortoise was not actually from another planet. <laughs> they also apparently much rather eating the non-native plants, so it helps that way as well. So it's helping with agriculture. That's very interesting. So it, is there a species missing that would have otherwise performed that role? Uh, it doesn't say in this paper. and I'm So, yeah, it, it just says that they're, without fruit eaters, the trees can no longer disperse the seeds. So presumably there were fruit eaters on the island at some point. Um... Oh yeah, here it is. Giant skinks, a type of lizard, most likely flight or most likely flightless dodo birds. Ah, okay. So um, it does actually say that. Yep. This is this is one of those things about ecology. It's one of the things that makes ecology so interesting that you can get very very different species that are only very distantly distantly related that fulfil an ecological niche. And although generally invasive species are are not beneficial. If you're refilling a niche that has, for some reason, become empty, then actually it can obviously perform very useful tasks. Well, this is why they've used giant tortoises, is that if you use a giant tortoise, um, basically, small lions have small food chains, so you don't want to do too much damage. But you can actually go and get rid of a giant tortoise population quite easily. They don't move fast. Uh, they're quite giant, so you can see them. And if you had to introduce a predator, it's not hard to find something that can catch them. All too sadly, this has been proved in their native lands where they're running out quite dramatically. Yeah, because they make quite good soup, don't they? Um, I think the main thing was that early sailors found that they could drag a giant tortoise onto their ship, keep it alive for as long as they needed, so there's no issue with storing food because the food was just wandering about in its own big bowl. And then you, when, when they got hungry, they then just killed it and ate it. Mmm, tasty. Mmm. So the other paper I want to talk about is that Cell, uh, which is a leading scientific journal, uh, published an article on the science of the royal wedding. And they didn't go for make-believe science. No, they actually went and found some really tenuous links to real science. And I'll just pick a, a few of the examples. One of them was discussing uh, royal jelly in bees. And this is that when they beehive wants to make a queen bee, they um, feed it a thing called royal jelly. And this switches on and off certain genes within the bee and makes it grow into the queen bee rather than a standard bee. And somehow they link this to Kate Milton's lifestyle. So there you go. I love the way that they've juxtaposed a photograph of Kate Middleton next to a photograph of some bee larvae. Uh, I'm not sure quite what they're trying to say there. Um, I don't know. It's certainly, I'm sure Kate Middleton, I'm certainly sure that Kate Middleton never ever wants to be put near bee larvae. It's not something I look forward in life. And um, the other one I put up was actually four parts of his paper. It was uh, talking about sovereign heads and um, saying that Kate will stand in line to become England's sixth Queen Catherine, a duty which she will no doubt be well suited. Um, but then it points out how many of the previous Queen Catherines have been beheaded, particularly Catherine <laughs> Howard, the fifth wife of Henry VIII. 
And, um, yeah, so, you know, you're thinking, where are they going with this? And somebody pointed out that the freshwater polyp hydra, for example, can regenerate head structures after being cut in half, which I didn't actually know that there's anything that can regenerate its head. But if you don't know what a hydra is, this is not some mythical beast from Greek legend. It's actually a very small little thing that's... Goes, sits around in water and um, you have to cut in a particular way for it to regrow so it's less exciting and yes some of the paper goes in to say that it secretes the morphogen WNT3 at the wound site which triggers proliferation of neighbouring cells that initiate the head regeneration program right Wait, all right, uh, that just rolls off the tongue <laughs> but that is the sort of techno babble you would expect from a science fiction movie that's very true actually that um, you can quite easily imagine that being picked up as an excuse for some new medicine that enables people to regrow their heads. That would be a really awful TV series. It would, but you can also picture them using exactly the same sort of language to develop a super shark of sorts that would, of course, immediately be extremely powerful and strong. And uh, there was a film, of course, about these super sharks that were genetically modified. And, of course, the very first GM shark experiments that they did gave super-intelligent, enormous, super-powerful sharks, rather than, of course, sharks that were desperately ill. I seem to remember one of the main points of that movie, though, is that the sharks could swim backwards. Ah, yes. Which, oddly, I thought, was... It's odd how you give something super-intelligence and the gills now work both directions. Handy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm now clever enough to redesign my gills. <laughs> so we'll get back to comic books now, having taken that slight foray into the strangest science publications of the week. And one of the people I've seen in your pile is Alan Moore. Uh, well, yes, V for Vendetta was one of the comics that happened to be available at Bristol Central Library at the time. And Alan Moore, again, is somebody who is clearly very aware of the social and ethical implications of what he's publishing, be it about science, be it about politics. The, the actual science count in V for Vendetta, for those of you who've seen the film or read the comic itself, um, the science count was pretty low, but the references to science I found were, were quite mixed. Now, one thing I thought when I first went into this was that it's quite possible that actually the overall picture of science in comics might be quite negative, because you've got Superman, who's an alien, you've got Spider-Man, who gained his powers in an accident, you've got all sorts of people like that, and the people trying to defeat them are quite often rich people with science. Um, Dr Octopus, of course, was you know, clinically insane, but he was a, an incredible scientist who built this fantastic exoskeleton, isn't quite it, but it, it built these incredible arms that he could use. Now, he needed to use science and technology to try and defeat the, for want of a better word, magically endowed um, Spider-Man. And so I wondered if there might be those sorts of playoffs in there. V for Vendetta, not so much, actually, because the main character, and again, it's... It, whether or not he's a hero or a villain depends on your perspective. But he uses a lot of simple tricks of technology. He uses a good understanding of the way that the world works in order to do what he does. And so I actually found as I went through that the, the, the actual depictions of science in these comics are quite well balanced. And I think that probably goes for, for the vast majority of comics. I, of course, could only look at a subset and hopefully 
uh, other people will do similar work and will find similar things. So V for Vendetta is a, a lovely thing to read. It's quite bleak. It's dystopian, as you'd expect. So actually the depictions of a lot of things in V for Vendetta are quite negative because it's set in this dystopian future. Uh, very much like Orwell's 1984, where, of course, you see technology being used to suppress people. And you see very little of technology being used in order to, to get around this, uh, this totalitarian regime. So the things are all very balanced. But Alan Moore now writes uh, Dodgem Logic, which is uh, a, uh, a... Comic is a slightly odd word for Dodgem Logic. It contains comics, but it also contains various other things. And he has written in that about political ideas and also about some of the ways that technology are affecting our lives. So, very, very interesting man. He's somebody I'd very much like to sit down and share a cup of tea with at some point, but he's quite secretive and keeps no, to himself. He's gashing out a bit more now. I saw him at Tam London. Ah, and yes. he's, uh, which is the amazing meeting in London for people who don't know the acronym. And he, yeah, he's been doing a few more shows around, when I say shows, turning up and meet and greet type things. He's an interesting man. He has a belief in an ancient Roman god, I think, if you check it. It might be Greek, uh, which he openly admits was probably a sock puppet. <laughs> and he just, I think he just does this to cause confusion and just make you sit there and get conf just stressed. Because <laughs> you can't cope with that. I believe in a god no one else believes in anymore, which could prophesize, look like a snake, probably was a sock puppet. And if you ask him, he just adamantly accepts he believes in it. Well, I think he's a very individual man with his own individual beliefs, and I think he's probably choosing examples in order to highlight that. Yeah, I, certainly as a... For me, I find it very difficult to cope with that. He knows it's false, but he's going to claim he believes in it. It's sort of... Disinformation is very jarring for me. But he's, he's, he's a very talented man. He was When he was at Tam London, he read some of his poetry about a council of state he knew. And uh, it was it was very moving and very grim, it, you know, the way those sort of places can eat up people. And I think that's one thing that speaks for his work, is it's often very political, and he does have a very good understanding of the world. But this also speaks for why it's actually important to understand things like comics, because he's... Uh, activist is too strong a word, but he's certainly a commentator, and he chooses to use comics and graphic novels in order to get that message out. And the same thing exactly goes for for science as well. We know that it, the comic book characters can be used to help people identify with a certain person if that person happens to be a scientist, of which there are a few in comic books, some of whom are, are good, some aren't. Doc Ock, again, is an example of a, an evil, nasty scientist, but then he's insane. And so the implication there is that, that it's not necessarily the scientist, but the insanity that is causing him to do bad things. Uh, Jean Grey, who uh, is, of course, one of the, uh, the, the sort of superheroes in the X-Men, is a scientist. That's what she does. And she is a, a good character to look up to. Um, again, as it happens, she goes evil at one point, but, uh, but don't they all at some point in, in the comic universe? All scientists have to go evil. Oh, well, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I don't know many scientists that I would genuinely describe as evil. I don't, I don't think so either, but is it a rule of comic books? That's the question. Uh, it could well, but I think actually all characters at some point go evil in comic books. That's just probably a fact that any comic book that runs long enough for you to be successful eventually has to change the mould somewhere. It, Coronation Street would probably have scientists who went evil if they had one. Oh, that's a, a wonderfully interesting discussion, perhaps for another day, about whether or not we should try and encourage people to put 
scientists into Coronation Street and EastEnders and all of those other things. A lot of people will have very little contact with scientists, but most people will know somebody who works in science. And it's very rare that you see them turn up in soap operas, but then... Even if they were there, they wouldn't necessarily sit down and discuss their work. So for all we know, there are lots of characters in EastEnders who actually work in a lab, but uh, what we see of them is them shouting in a laundrette. Well, most scientists don't walk into a home and say, hi, everyone, I'm a scientist, because <laughs> that's generally how to get everyone to walk closer to the TV and watch the football match more and talk to you less. And uh, we've got another track for you, and um, do let us know what you think of the discussion. It's only about coronation street in science, if you want to. <laughs> And um, yeah, we'll catch up with you after this. Tarzan wasn't a ladies' man. He'd just come along and scoop him up under his arm like that. Quick as a cat in the jungle But Clark Kent, no, there was a real gent He would not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme Dumb as an ape doing nothing Solomon Grundy And sometimes I despair The world will never see another man Like him Hey Bob Soup had a straight job Even though he could have smashed through any bank in the United States he had the strength, but he would not Folks said his family were all dead The planet crumbled, but Superman, he forced himself to carry on Get Krypton and keep going Sometimes I despair the world will never see another man like him. Tarzan was king of the jungle and lord over all the apes. But he could hardly string together Sometimes when soup was stopping crimes I'll bet that he was tempted to just quit and turn his back on man Join 
Superman song by the Crash Test Dummies. Yeah, it's quite a sad sounding one, actually. That's from their 1991 album, The Ghosts That Haunt Me, which is actually their debut album. Um, and it really, it's it's a song that's mourning the passing of Superman, which is not really generally what people do when they're writing songs about superheroes. And the, it's saving the world from Solomon Grundy. Solomon Grundy is actually a, uh, a reanimated supervillain who has turned up in, in the Superman back catalogue quite a lot. Um, first appeared in uh, one of the DC uh, issues in 1944, so he's been doing pretty well for himself. And that song also featured in the pilot of a TV programme that occasionally relies on dodgy science, and that's, that was the excellent Due South. Oh, that takes me back. I know my wife was definitely a fan of Due South. Well, again, it had the same sorts of things where it was a little bit too early for people to rely on DNA evidence in, in a flash of, a, of notice, but there were a few little bits where you thought, mm, not convinced. But by and large, it was pretty good, actually. Yeah, I mean, that, was, that is a case of not a superhero, but a larger-than-life character, the uh, Mountie. Do you remember his name? Uh, yes, he was Benton Fraser. There you go. Uh, which actually seamlessly links us to we got another message in and it is from my dear wife and she's <laughs> pointed out that Reed Richards in the Fantastic Four was a scientist but he wasn't evil in that, fa- that's very true although again I'm sure I'm not actually an expert in, in the Fantastic Four universe and I'm sure somebody out there could provide us with an, an issue where all four of them went evil but uh, but yeah you're right they, they were all researchers in fact were they gained their powers because of being exposed to radiation I believe that was and in the movie it was solar radiation which I don't know if that reflects a modern ch- and probably are more scared of space now well, it's still scary. Very possible. Well, there, there are good reasons to be scared sometimes when you look into some of them. But, yeah, and, but that also brings up a good point that there are some good scientist superheroes. Uh, we've d- just been talking while that track was playing about Iron Man, because um, he, Tony Stark, uh, of course, owns a big company, but he himself is very, very capable as a, as a researcher, as a, an engineer. Uh, Bruce Wayne owns a company that does a great deal of research, and that's where he gets all his fantastic toys from. So there are clearly good scientists superhero examples around and I, I think really that's that should just be a good excuse for lots more scientists to read and possibly write comics. I think one of the nice things about uh, Iron Man, it's only the first movie because I haven't read the comics is that it was actually he turned around and showed it to the commercial side of his character which was his big businessman that 
he was more interested, he had the morals and the scientist in him was more driven than actually the company. He didn't care about business, he cared about science. And that's actually a really good thing actually to end on, because we're coming up to the end of the show, is that a lot of science is hard work, and that's what you do, it's still rush, but you see him sitting at the lab working very hard to develop his new toy, as it were. Uh, but he's got that drive that scientists have that they sort of don't, no, most people don't sort of relate because they don't understand what they're seeing but this wonderful interest in what they're doing. And you see the same with um, Reed Richards in Fantastic Four. In the movies, he's actually pushing away the person he loves because he's so interested in what he's doing. And, I mean, I don't want to suggest that all scientists go that far, but it's that... I think that's the nice perception. people who are so in love with science. And to take it a step further is the scientists actually sometimes criticise not seeing the beauty in the world around them, but I think they're actually far better than a lot of people. But if you go and talk to a... Scientist about Dictocedium, slime mold. It is one of the most amazing organisms I've ever come across, but it is slime mold. It is a gooey, <laughs> slimy creature, but it is absolutely incredible. So, this is um, the science of fiction, and you, I've been joined today by Ben Vowsler. Thank you ever so much for having me. And uh, I think this is where we're going to leave the show for now. So, do feel free to leave any comments on our website, and we will try and put them in the show next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>